I'm Trin Collins, and welcome to the podcast, More Friends. Here, we will be reconnecting with the artists and writers who have come to the island over the past 10 years. Lighthouse Works is a nonprofit dedicated to giving amazing people the time and space to focus on their work. Each month on the podcast, I'll interview a former fellow, diving deeply into who they are and the themes they keep returning to in their work. We aim to share with you our friends, these lovely and marvelous thinkers and makers who we've met over the years. After or during the episode, make sure to visit our website, lighthouseworks.us, for more content, including images or links to some of the topics we cover. So let's get started. Hi, and welcome to this episode of More Friends. Today, I got to chat with writer and cartoonist Lydia Conklin. Lydia has a new book coming out May 31st called Rainbow Rainbow. Time named it one of the, quote, 21 most anticipated books of 2022. And for good reason. This collection of short stories is so intimate and real. I loved reading them, and I'm still thinking about each of the stories. Join us while we chat about many horses, the darkness of childhood, and capturing characters' inner dialogues, as well as the pros and cons of AOL Instant Messenger. See you there. Okay, it's happening. Yay! Yay! <laughs> I've got a happening. I'm so sorry. I feel like every time there's a new tech thing I'm figuring out. How long has this podcast been going? Not very long. Since like January. So Oh, that's new. Yeah. What's going to happen is we're like redoing our website. We hired this schmancy firm that's going to really give us a very sexy website. And I decided that I wanted to, because we're doing these interviews over COVID with the former fellows. And I was like, these are so great, but like, I kind of want them to be more intimate. And so... I pitched a podcast to Nate and he was like, all right, yeah, sure. So cool. we bought some equipment. <laughs> Amazing. That's so fun. I love podcasts. It's pretty fun. It's all going to drop on Memorial Day weekend. So our new website will drop as well as the podcast. First four episodes. Cool. You're episode number eight. Amazing. Who else has been podcasted if you were calling? Oh my God. I'm on the spot. I'm on the spot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Andrew McGinty, an artist, Alana Clark, an artist, Catherine Taylor, a writer. Who else? Oh, G. Gao, who's a writer. Oh, I'm... I can't think. Other okay, people. But that's a good long list. It's a good long list. Yeah. And they're all kind of different, but I do have some like mainstay questions that we'll get to. Oh, amazing. But I did just wanted to start by saying like, this was so awesome. I had the best time reading it. Oh, thanks. That makes me so happy to hear. <laughs> it wasn't always like easy to read, but I feel like I didn't want to put it down, even if it got really hard. Oh, that's good to know. That's so good to know. I wanted to start by asking, what is it like to have a book come out? Because it actually just doesn't come out until like a month from now. Yeah, it's been wild. I feel like my expectations were so low because it took me a long time to put this out. I mean, I know people take all kinds of amounts of time, but when I graduated from my MFA, I thought, oh, my book is almost done. And then it was literally 10 years later than my book was coming out. So I was just like frustrated and had many hard chips along the way, not to publishing this book, but just in general, trying to publish a book. And it's just so much harder than I expected. And I'm a perfectionist and blah, blah, blah. So by the time it actually was coming out, I was like, nobody is going to read it. And that's fine. And so then every time something like nice or cool happens, I'm like, wow, instead of some people go into things like being like, I'm going to win the Pulitzer Prize. And then it's like they don't and they're crushed. So I feel like it wasn't strategic at all, but it's actually a better way to go into the horrible hellscape of publishing with no expectations. What was the hellest scape of publishing? Like, what was the thing that you really just didn't even know was going to be so hard about it? Well, I kind of sent my book out in a slight panic. I mean, it was ready, but I submitted it the weekend before 
the election where Biden got elected, but I thought Trump's going to get reelected. The world is over. This is my last chance to submit my book. So it was kind of in a panic and it ended up working out and I got the best editor ever who I'm obsessed with. And I love my publisher, but it was kind of a panicky stab and like a long relationship ended with my fiance. And I was like, I need a new job. I need to get an academic job. So I need a book right now. And it was just kind of the, not the most calm way to go into it. Don't you feel like everything always happens at once? It's like the best things and then the worst things all at the same time. Totally. Yeah. And it ended up being like, so far, this is one of the best things that ever happened to me to publish this book. And I got a dream job out of it. And I've had so many good responses and I feel so proud. And it's like the biggest accomplishment of my life. So it ended up being amazing, but there's lots of anxieties. And I think when you ask what it feels like, I think one of the ways it feels is just, I feel like I'm a couple clicks up in vulnerability all the time. So like vulnerable things that I used to do no problem, like reading a paragraph at my small intimate writing group now is like so much scarier because it's just like, I have this constant feeling of exposure. Like at any minute, some troll could come out of the woodwork or I could get a horrible review. And so everything feels a little bit scarier just as on a base level. Yeah. I will say like this group of stories Is it awkward at times to talk about because they're so intimate? Yeah, totally. And they're not 100% autobiographical, of course, but like there's parts of me and my experience in every single one. And so it feels vulnerable. Like some of the hardest things I've dealt with are in the book. And so that's scary. I mean, it's nice because you can hide behind the mantle of fiction and be like, it's all fake, but anyone can know it's not fake. It's not all fake. Yeah. There was something really real about them. Even though I knew that it was fiction, I still felt like they were grounded in a lot of lived experience and stuff that I was like, oh my God, how does this person know that this is how people think? Or like, how does this person know that that's how I felt at 12 or whatever, right? There were a lot of moments like that for me. And I just, it was comforting, but it was also like really dark. There's a lot of darkness and comedy, but I don't know. I'm curious about the structure of a short story because it really lends itself, I feel like, to tackling just how like strange and fucked up life can be. And I don't know. Did you know you wanted to make short stories? Well, so no, not at first. I mostly have read novels all my life as a kid and stuff. And I'd read only short stories that were assigned in school up until college. And then in college, I started doing my first writing workshops and it's just so much easier to workshop a short story than part of a novel because you can see the whole thing. So that's when I like learned the form and I do love it. Like someone was asking me about the lengths of time in these stories and a lot of them are only taking place over the course of a few hours or a couple of them have two or three days at the most. So like it's really a short amount of time in someone's life. Like you were talking about, you know, the structure and how it kind of encapsulates life. It's like, this is just a tiny part of someone's life, but I try to pick a place where it's like everything is changing in some way for them. Yeah. It feels like how life can feel where like you have this really intense moment, but then it's kind of met by like a lot of other ones right stacked up on it. So you almost can't unpack that one thing because it's like, oh no, sorry, there's this other thing. And then there's this other thing. Totally. Yeah. That's just how things tend to happen. It's like they cascade like that. Do you ever have trouble where people will say like, hey, that's me in the book or like you stole that thing? So like a couple stories in there do have real people in them and I ran it by them. And I kind of was using as a model, this writer, Leslie Jameson, who I love. She writes nonfiction, but how she deals with things is she'll give the story to the person who's in it and say like, 
I'm not promising to change anything, but let me know if there's something that makes you feel uncomfortable, maybe something that's easy for me to change. And so I did that with a few people and most of them said, it's all fine. And one of them said, can you change this one sentence? And I was happy to do so, but there are people in there that it's obviously not them exactly, but it's inspired by them in one way or another or aspects of them who I'm not in touch with anymore. And so I have this fear that someone's going to come and be mad at me because that's my greatest fear is someone being mad at me. So it does frighten me. (laughs) I think we share that fear. I also have that fear. I've started to read a little bit of Brene Brown. Have you heard of her before? No. Um, She's this really cool sociologist who has written a bunch of books. I mean, Oprah had her on Soul Sunday or whatever, but she's cool and she's really down to earth, but she kind of tries to unpack a lot of these things like human emotion and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things that I recently read and I kind of thought about a lot with these stories is this idea that everybody's doing the best they can. Like I was thinking a lot about the story of fearless moral inventory. Oh yeah. And how like Carla and the ferrets, I mean, she really is just like a mess. And yeah. (laughs) (laughs) and you kind of want to shake her and be like, just get it together. But you also kind of understand her messiness in a way that feels like, yeah, like she needs to be a mess for a little while. But anyway, it's just this idea that there are probably a lot of people mad at her. She like is like upsetting a lot of people. But if you think about it, she's probably just doing the best she can. And I feel that way about a lot of these characters. They're kind of fucking up, but they're just doing the best that they can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I think I'm drawn to writing about protagonists who are struggling and messing up and maybe doing things that I wouldn't do. But yeah, they have usually the best intentions at heart. I want people to be able to tell why they're struggling and the ways in which they're struggling. Yeah, I had a moment this morning. So the story counselor of my heart where the dog goes into the water and ultimately perishes. Um, yeah. I had a moment this morning where I almost killed my dog and I thought, holy oh, shit, no. I'm Molly. Oh no. <laughs> I have to take blood pressure medicine and my dog's like 14 or one of them. And so she has like a litany of pills that I have to give her twice a day. And so my medicine kind of co-mingled with hers because they look the same. Oh no. And I gave her half of one of my blood pressure medicine pills. And I was like, oh my God. And then I called the vet and the vet was like, let me get back to you. And then when they got back to me, they were like, it's fine. It's not a fatal dose. They were like, if you'd given her the whole pill, like it might've been a fatal dose. I was like, fuck. That's terrifying. It's terrifying. You're just sort of like, I don't know. Today I had that thought where I was like, we're all just kind of on the edge of disaster sometimes. And you have the best intentions. Like I'm just trying to wake up and give my dog her pills. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's just like accidents or death. It's like everything is just one wrong step away. It's terrifying to think about. It's like you kind of have to try to pretend it's not the case to just like function. (laughs) (laughs) Totally true. Totally true. Not to belabor Brene Brown, but I realized that I missed the exit on the last thing that I wanted to say, which was I walk around and I sometimes think people are mad at me for like no reason. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. like I drive around the island and like people always wave at each other and like maybe someone doesn't wave at me and then I think oh my gosh they're mad at me and I'm like <laughs> why why are they mad at me I don't even know them that well and I have to really talk myself through it we have these narratives about ourselves is what Brene Brown says and part of it is like figuring out what that narrative is and then being like that's not true One of my mentors, Linda Berry, who's like my favorite cartoonist, she told this story about being at a party one night and then the next morning calling the host and being like, I'm so stressed out about this thing I said to someone and this other thing I did. And the host was like, Linda, are you thinking about what anyone else said at the party? And she was like, no. And she's like, well, nobody's thinking about you and just hung up the phone. And it was like, yeah, people are so caught up in their own problems that they're probably not mad at me when I think they're mad at me. They're just like 
thinking about their own insecurities and weird things. I'm like, I always forget that, but it's like, yeah, I'm such a people pleaser that I'm just always terrified about that. Me too. It's a real problem, but I'm working on it. Yeah, same. (laughs) (laughs) I was kind of astounded by some of these stories that were tween teen stories and they just were like so real. And you know, it's like that moment in time where like, I don't know how you captured it. Like, do you have diaries from that time? Just the way like young people talk to each other. It's like, it makes no sense. But yet like I'm reading it. I'm like, I remember that. I remember when like a friend of mine would say something kind of mean, you know, just to try it out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I have a weird access to that time somehow. And I don't know why, but I feel like a lot of people don't tend to give credit to how much you know and how complicated you are at that time. And to kind of not necessarily even romanticize teenagers, but maybe dumb them down a bit or like wash out their complexity. But it's like, I was aware of a lot when I was very little and I don't think I was abnormal in that way, but I think it's just like you are darker and more complicated person than it even seems like you are when you're interacting with a child. For some reason, like that time, a lot happened in that time for me and it's very much embedded in my mind. So I feel a certain access to it. The dialogue was like spooky where I was like, this is crazy because, you know, like you have all this vulnerability at this time and you have to pretend you kind of know stuff and then stuff you do know. And so you're just trying it all on and you're laughing. I mean, I don't think I've laughed as much as I did when I was that age. You just think everything's hilarious. You just have these friendships that are like so intense. Yes. And unrequited loves that are so intense. I mean, I really was like, Hazel, I was like, I understand you. (laughs) It was really cool. And like, I don't know, this instant messaging thing, like AOL, I was like, oh, wow. Blast from the past. Yeah. That was so wild. Cause I just was growing up right when the internet was coming out in middle school. That's when like AIM started. How old are you? I'm 38. Okay. I'm 37. So it's like same, yeah, same, same. same gener- it's such a weird generation to be. And I feel like it was so new. We were figuring it out. And our parents had no idea. It was yeah, like, the we were talking no to people and like, we were like going into weird chat rooms and yeah. Like part of that is true. Like I met adult strangers when I was 12 on the internet who were like looking to date that were like, 27. And it's like, that's scary. I don't know. Like, I just feel like, I mean, maybe that still happens because the internet is so big time hard to monitor. It happens like over Instagram now. Yeah, probably so. But just the beginnings of that and like how to navigate it. And it just was huge for me also. Maybe I don't know, good or bad, I can't say, but just being like a queer kid. And I remember us searching Ani DeFranco and like the search terms and seeing like, okay, if it says Ani DeFranco in the profile, they're definitely gay. And then finding people like in next state over who were gay and talking to someone we never saw their picture, knew anything about them. They could have been anyone. And it was just wild. It is wild. It is wild. And to be like, so, I don't know, like trusting it kind of dovetails into the story that, oh, the suburbs who, that was a really hard one for me to read, but like also page turns. I was like, I've been there, you know, like I know this adult who like does this stuff. Like I've been there. So I just was like, this is, it was so real to me. And I love this line. You said tonight, the snow made the whole world private. Oh and yeah. I know that feeling, you know, it just in the relationship between the two girls, it was a, really good slice and hard to read. And I think those two things can be true. I think some people just want stories to be like one way, but I think what's interesting about this collection of stories is how dark it is. Yeah, it's true. 
I feel like I like to find that balance with the humor and darkness because I feel like the experience of life is so complex that both things are there always. And I don't feel like a story is satisfying if it only is light and funny or if it only was all darkness. So trying to get that balance is very important to me. Yeah. And paying attention to all the details. At one point (laughs) I underlined her breasts pushing gaps between the buttons. Yes. Yeah. Always. Always. Why? Why are shirts like that? Yeah. Yeah. I went to private school when I was younger and I just always have to wear those button up shirts and always feeling like they just never fit. Oh, dang. Yeah. Uniforms the worst. The worst. Yeah. Oh, you know what I came across on the internet? Speaking of the internet. And speaking of you as a young person, the early work cartoons. Oh, yeah. Those are so funny. And I felt like such a clear line between what you're kind of dealing with now tonally. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Like looking at my old stuff, it's like, wow, I was always the same person. Yeah. My first comic strip is on there called The Grim Tree, which was just about a dour tree. (laughs) (laughs) That couldn't move or do much, but just was very sour about the world. Oh my God. Hilarious. And there's one just for people who maybe aren't going to Google this, but they should is Alabaster says goodbye. And it's just a little girl waving to her mom and she's in a grave. (laughs) (laughs) And the mom says, say hello to dad. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. Yeah. I just feel like culturally we erase a lot of the darkness, you know, like we don't really want to hold on to it, especially with kids. I don't think that serves kids at all. Yeah. Because I just remember like feeling when there was that vibe from adults that they weren't taking me seriously or understanding me. And it was just so easy to brush them off. Like I was talking to my friend who is still my really close friend who I met in high school and our drama department did some plays about really strange things. The first play I was in as a freshman was about a lesbian albino post-apocalyptic Cyrano de Bergerac. And that was like our school play because we had just this amazing drama teacher that was so rare. But sometimes parents would be like, these kids shouldn't be writing about this dark material. And it was like, well... That's lame. Like now I see that there could be an argument for like a way we could have dealt with things in a more nuanced way or whatever, but it was just so easy to dismiss them when it was like, they're just not giving us credit for like being able to understand that things in the world are dark as much as we could. And happening to you. It's not like the world holds itself back from being complicated or or upsetting when you're younger. So right, exactly. To not address it is to put another barrier on trying to handle it, right? Totally. Or it's like maybe an adult laziness or a fear of having to look at it and see something painful in kids and just it's easier to pretend they don't understand but they do. Yeah. In the story Laramie time the main character sits down with their sperm donor friend. What's his name? Arun. Arun, Arun. yeah. And he um, tells Maggie this story about a kid who sort of goes off and is wandering around by himself and something happens to him and they're not quite sure what. And then he's like, quote unquote, never the same. And I will say as a newish parent, (laughs) that is so horrible. I was like, I do know that feeling where it's like, you just want to protect this little person from all the things. And at some point I know that like, I can't do that. And I think that's one of the worst human bad deals, you know, like you got to see your kids suffer on some level. Yeah. And that story Arun is like the thing that scares him about parenthood is that 
you just said. At some point, you have to like send your kid to school and they are going to have experiences that you won't be there for and that you won't even know what they are. Not that they'll even necessarily be bad, but just they'll have experiences outside of you that will be affecting them in ways you can't see. I know. It's horrible. (laughs) I loved in that story, the way you captured how couples talk or how you like don't talk. That was really cool because you capture like the inherent flaw of it all, right? That we're all these like separate people with like all this interior dialogue. Maybe that's what it is. You just such a strong idea of like maybe someone's interior dialogue. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's something I really have worked on and wanted to get right in my writing is like getting close to a character and how they think and how their interior progresses. But yeah, like with that story, we have access to Lee's inner thoughts and we see how she's thinking about this parenthood issue and how it's progressing over time. And she's interpreting her partner's actions, but we find out later she's not always getting it right. But I feel like that's common in a long-term relationship as you take for granted how your partner's thinking and you feel like you know them so well and you're almost one entity, but there's actually stuff going on that you may not have access to. And if things are going wrong, you may be diverging in ways that you can't realize until it's maybe too late. I know the crestfallen moment that she realizes that her partner's been working on the book and not telling her. Yeah. Yeah. I was interested in that moment because it's like, it should be a good thing that Maggie is working on the book, but because of their communication issues, it becomes a bad thing in the story. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. When you're in a relationship with someone else who's making things, that becomes a really weird part of the dynamic. Totally. Especially if you share a medium. Oh my God. Yeah. I pretty much have always dated writers for the last like 12 years. And everyone's like, how can you date another writer? It's horrible. Don't date writers. I'm like, honestly, I don't know if I could ever date someone who's not a writer because I'm obsessed with writing and reading. It's all I want to talk about, think about. It's like, I want to engage with someone at that level about the thing I love the most. But at the same time, it has many complications because like you're in competition for the same thing or someone's work is going well and someone else's isn't it you have to have a certain dynamic that's supportive and not competitive which is not always the case for it to work so that's hard because it's also ego right it's like you could not be a competitive person but like maybe you're feeling not so great about your work i also like that story too because they're at this point that I feel like I know so well, which is like, you're an adult. You're kind of not an adult. You're getting paid to do things, but you're not sure what you want to do for your like rest of your life. And you just feel like, how do you find success? What are you supposed to be doing? You know, I've been there when, is it Maggie who just stops working on her novel? Like we all have that friend or we've been that person. Totally. Yeah. It's like, it's a time when some paths are established, but it's like nothing is solidified in a certain way and anything could change at any moment. And I just, yeah, that was like all through my twenties, just watching friends go through different career paths or creative U-turns or totally changing, having successes. Like it, it was just very tumultuous and unstable feeling for everyone around me. Just the feeling of like, what will life be? I know it's why. Yeah. 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 The end of that story is killer. Oh, thanks. It's pretty amazing. Okay. So what are you doing now? Are you going to move to Nashville? Are you in Nashville now? I'm in Michigan now, but I am moving. I actually was in Nashville the last couple of weeks setting up my house and putting a renter in and stuff like that. But yeah, the end of July, I shall move to Nashville which I'm really excited about. Okay. So you got a tenure track position yeah. at Vanderbilt, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I'm so happy. The academic job market is a brutal, brutal gauntlet. And I think I was like for three years on the market and having temporary positions, which I did love, but I'm just so excited 
I think I was counting up that I moved like eight or nine times in the last 12 years. And I'm, I'm just like sick. I loved it at first. It was exciting and thrilling and amazing. And I feel like I've gotten to meet people all over the place, but I'm just so ready to have a home in one place. That'll be so great. Yeah. It's always so nice. I'm excited. I've never been to Nashville, but I've heard lots of good things. You should come visit. I'm going to come visit. (laughs) I've only been there for two weeks, but it already seems amazing. Oh my gosh. So it's like a whole new thing. You're just not sure what's going to be like. Do you start in the fall or do you have to do some summer stuff? I start in mid-August, but yeah, not too soon. Have some time. So you have time to like set up house and make friends. Yeah, make friends. Although I'll be doing book stuff this whole summer. So it's not too calm. That's right. That's right. Okay. So what kind of book stuff? Just readings all over? Are you getting flown around? Yeah, I'm doing like three things in New York, one in San Francisco, one in LA, one in Philly. I might try to set up another thing or two and then a few different online things. Oh, and I'm going to Virginia to Randolph MFA, uh, low res MFA program too. So some academic stuff, but mostly books, indie bookstore kind of thing. All right. Well, this is like the first time you've gone on a book tour. So it's like very, very exciting. I'm excited. Yeah. I love reading and meeting people and I have friends in all those places. So it'll be so fun to see friends and things. Do you think you're going to read from the same story every time or how are you going to? Probably not because then I'd get bored, I think. But I have a few that I enjoy reading from. What are the few? I'm curious. Well, for a long time, The Black Winter of New England was my favorite. And I might go back to that because I haven't done it for a while. But lately, I've been reading from Laramie Time a lot because so some of them get more laughs when I read them out loud, like Cheerful Until Next Time or The Black Winter of New England. They're more like jokes and funny and ooh, the suburbs at the beginning, all those at the beginning. But when everything was on Zoom, I realized, oh, it's not as rewarding to read something funny because you can't hear the response. And I don't know, people, are they laughing in their private homes? So I read more of like Laramie Time because it's it's more serious. Interesting. And I didn't know that about the Shepherd murder, that they were actually lovers. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's even known, but I have friends in Laramie and that's the word on the street in Laramie from people who knew them or knew people who knew them. So it's not that it's necessarily confirmed, but it's just what I've been told. It's an interesting, different way of looking at it. And I think it's sort of also like, it takes something that's been flattened and starts to give it a little bit more dimension on all sides, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't take away from the hate crime aspect of it at all, but it does make it more complicated. And of course, we know that a lot of homophobic or transphobic people have their own issues that they're struggling with. And that's why they bother to get so mad about things. But so it makes a certain emotional sense that the killer would have been wrestling with his own stuff. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So I have some questions about the comics. Oh, cool. How do those fit in for you? Like, I feel like they're in a similar way where like some of the artists I talk to, they have very different things that they're doing. Like sometimes they'll be writing, but also making paintings. I'm always interested how those two things touch. Yeah. It's interesting because they're very, very different. For the most part, my comics would have been totally different material than my writing. It's a different process. I do a lot more prose writing than I do comics, but when I do comics, I do it at night. It's a more calming process because with writing, you have to have your whole mind turned up to a hundred, like just thinking so hard. And when you're doing comics, you do sometimes have to do that. But a lot of the steps are more relaxing, like ruling out a grid of panels or like inking over your pencils. Like you can kind of 
listen to an audio book and it's calming, but in terms of subject matter, so Laramie time, the story you were just talking about and my main comics project right now, lesbian cattle dogs, both kind of have origins in the same emotional content for my own life. And that's the only time I've used the same emotional content and shaped it into both a short story and a comic. And it was revealing to me in terms of how differently both came out. Like the story, like you were pointing out, is much more internal. And it's about the internal movement of a character processing the world around her. And with the comic, there's no narration or interiority whatsoever, because I don't like that in comics. I feel like if there's a chunk of text and then a picture, you kind of read the text and then move on. You don't really look at the picture. I like when the words are integrated into the picture, like with dialogue. So it's mostly dialogue based. And so it's more like funny and interactional. And obviously they're dogs instead of people. So that lends like a certain humor to the whole situation because it's like, why would dogs care about this? It makes you kind of realize that humans are foolish for like getting so freaked out by tiny things. Yeah. Do you have a dog? No, I used to foster dogs and I fostered actually 40 dogs over the course of four years. And I loved it. And I want to go back to it actually now that I'll not be renting a place anymore that I can't have pets in. But it was an amazing experience doing that. And I do actually want to get my own dog at some point because I absolutely love dogs. Oh, good. Good. That's <laughs> yeah. so exciting. All right. Yeah. So you're going to get a dog in Nashville or you're going to start helping out the dogs. Yeah. That's my dream. Oh, amazing. Do you have a particular kind of dog that you're like, this is the dream? I love mutts, but I don't know. I love German shepherds and every type of dog. But when I was fostering, I was living in Manhattan and tiny apartments. So all the dogs were like under 25 pounds, just like little random mutts, troubled mutts that I have affection for those. Oh my God. I will say when she takes the dog off the leash in that story, I'm like, no, no, I know. I know. And actually that moment was based on a friend's parents that happened to their dog. And it's just, oof. there's nothing you can do in that moment. Yeah. I think like animal pain, animal suffering is kind of the worst because there is a lot of like, can't help. I know like with my fosters, I was talking to someone about this the other day, but there were so many times when I wished I could just communicate and be like, if you just don't bite, your whole life is going to be better. Like you're putting yourself through so much pain and you can't connect the dots. So like, just don't bite people and you'll have a much better life. This is, sounds like things I'm telling my two-year-old right now, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, if you just don't bite, yeah. your life's going to be fine. Just don't yeah. bite. <laughs> yes. Well, at least your two-year-old will one day understand. It's crazy how much they understand because you think because they're not talking with as much complexity as you are to them, that they're not getting it, but they're getting it. And so there's those moments where it's like, oh, you were listening. (laughs) It's it's wild. It's wild. Yeah. I'm always so interested in those moments where you tell like a baby who can't talk at all, like, go get my glasses and they do it. And it's like, you can't talk, but you can understand. It's such a weird moment in development. It's really weird. And it's weird. Like what words they start to use. And it becomes this mirror where you're like, oh, that's something I do. So my daughter, Ollie, will go, mm-hmm, mm-mm, instead of saying yes and no. And it kind of drives me nuts. And for like a couple of weeks, I was like, I don't know where she's getting this. And then I realized the other day, it's me. Ah! That, that's where she's getting it from. <laughs> that's amazing. They bring out the mirror. They're really just this yeah. like little mirror. That's wild. Which also makes it really painful, you know, where you're yeah. like, mm, I guess I do do that thing. That's not cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So here are some random questions that I like to ask people. Who is your diva? 
Ooh. The first thing that comes to mind as I'm looking at this deck of cards, I know that the listeners can't see it, but it's these mini horses that help people. They're like therapy horses. My friend Sarah Labrie gave me this deck from Florida and these tiny horses, it's all these glamorous shots of them with like rainbows and waterfalls. And you can pull one as an inspirational card, but I would say these mini horses. They're your divas right now? (laughs) Yeah. I really want you to take a picture of one and send it to me because I'll put it up on the podcast. Oh, perfect. I'll do that. Oh my God. Mini therapy horses. I love it. Okay. What's your worst habit? Oof. I want to go back to like the people pleasing thing because it's just plagues me day in and day out. Like a habit I have is if somebody asks me to do something, I only think, can I do it? I don't think, do I want to do it? It like has taken years for me to be like, wait, like I'm just say I'm sitting in my apartment, even the simplest thing, like not even necessarily a professional thing. I'm sitting in my apartment. Someone's like, oh, I'm passing by your apartment. Do you want to go for a walk? I'm like, I am free. I'm not doing anything. I have no plans. The answer is yes. But then I'm like, do I want to go for a walk with this person right now? Maybe not. Maybe yes, maybe not. But I don't even think about that part of it, which is wild because it's like, it's not a necessarily an added good that I do say yes. But I think it's kind of a patriarchy based thing or something like that. And and so I'm trying to train myself out of that. I mean, think of how many times being raised you got rewarded for being not difficult. Right. Right. Yeah. It's creepy. It's very creepy. A lot, a lot. Yeah. Yeah, It's definitely a big part of me. My husband will make fun of me a lot and will call me camp counselor. (laughs) (laughs) And he'll be like, why are you trying to be like camp counselor of the year? And I'm like, I don't know. Obviously I like helping people and stuff, but I think not listening to that like other part of you, you just like lose touch with it. Totally. And it's like, I'm slightly a masochist and I like have a high tolerance for pain and discomfort. So like I can get through a lot of crap, but it's like, why do I need to do that? No. Why? I know. I feel like a lot of this is also just becoming an adult where you're like, boundaries. Whoa. I know. I like just learned what boundaries were like a couple of years ago. And I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) You're like, I don't have those. Oh my God. Like, what is this? I don't know. I know. I totally know what you're talking about. Okay. If you had to recommend a book that you were just like, someone's got to read it. They got to read it. What's it going to be? To be honest, the last book I read that I loved, it's a really great year for books, but The last one I read I loved so much is Nobody Gets Out Alive by Lee Newman, who's my editor. And I had never read her fiction before and I was afraid to read it because we already have this close relationship. And then I was just blown away. It's a story collection set in Alaska. I was in Alaska last summer and I loved it. And it, it was just so amazing to see such a weird place brought to life with all the strange characters that end up out there. It was just a joy from start to finish, I would say. That's really nice when you're like, feel really connected to someone and then you read their work or maybe you see their work or you experience what they make. And there is a worry there that you're not going to like it. (laughs) So it's always nice when you like it. It's like, yes. Yes. It's like when you start dating someone and there's some kind of artist, I'm like always afraid to look at their stuff for a while. Cause I'm like, oof, this will end it in a second. If I don't respect or like it. I know. I know. Although I will say this, one of the things that's been cool, because for me also, it's been like 10 years since graduate school is that there were people where I thought like, I don't know about that. You know, like, I don't know what they're making. It's like, not really, I'm not into it. And then that person five years later, I'm like, wow, I'm into it. I'm into that show. So like, sometimes you just have to wade through the garbage to get to the good stuff. It's like a process. Yeah. Yeah. My student 
recently asked, do you ever tell people if they should continue on with writing, like if they have it or not? And I was like, no, because yeah, I've read some people's work I read and and I couldn't see much in it. And then they're brilliant writers now. So it's just like, you never know what journey people's work is going to take. I know, right? Like when things all like click and align. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay. So I want to ask you about your time out here on the island. Oh yeah. So it was back in what, 2015? Yeah. So it was the spring of 2015. Yeah. Okay. You've been to a lot of residencies I saw on your CV. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But this is my favorite. It's your favorite? Yeah. It's within the top two, I'd say. This is good to hear. This is good to hear. What did you like about it? Oh my God. I loved everything. I loved how beautiful the place is and how amazing Nate was. Like he just made the most delicious food and would always care for like all our needs and was so easy, but also was a true friend to us. Sometimes there are certain boundaries with the staff and it's like, you can't fully get to know them, but it felt like Nate became my actual friend and that was amazing. But then I don't know. I love the ocean. I love islands. I love the ocean. So the landscape was amazing. And then I got lucky to have just a really great group of people that clicked, but we're also, everyone was hardworking that term. So sometimes it's like a residency. There ends up being a lot of socializing that can be a distraction, though it's also wonderful to make friends. And, but this one, it was like, we got a lot of work done and we got to make friends Maybe because of the size of the group too, partly it's like you have time to spend with everyone, but also it doesn't eat into your work time. It was four people, right? Actually, I think it was six, five or It's gotta be five. Six is impossible. It's five. It's five. It's five. It's five. Yeah, it was five. It was five. Yeah. Oh, that's so great to hear. And I do think that it being on an island makes it like especially fun and strange. Yeah. Just you feel like so separate from the world and like, it's hard to get off the island. I mean, it's a beautiful journey, but it's like, you wouldn't just go on a whim on that ferry. So you feel like you're just rooted in your work in a beautiful way. I forget what I was reading. I don't know if it was something you wrote or something else, but someone said something about how they lived in a place where no one could sneak up on them. Ooh. And I was like, oh, that's totally an island. Like yeah, you totally. have to cross, you have to take a plane. You got to like get on some. Oh yeah. It was in Laramie time because there's only two planes into yes. Laramie a day. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. 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 It's the same. It's the same as Fisher. I really thought about that. I never was there in the summer, but it seems like it would be a different vibe, but festive in a different way. So what time of year were you here? It was March to April. So it was like winter, but we saw the beginning of spring, which was nice. That is nice. I like it when it's quiet out here. I mean, some people don't, but I think that there are really good things about each time of year, you know, and you lose some of that quietness in the summer because it is so busy. I can imagine. Yeah. I would like to just go and visit it one day in the summer just to see the different vibes. Come back this summer. This summer's like a big extravaganza. It's 10 years. Really? Yeah. 10 years of Lighthouse Works. And we have a big, cool show up. Cool. And in the show, we're going to have stacks of books. Cool. So we're going to have some stacks of your book for sale. Amazing. Amazing. But seriously, when you're in New York, if you've like a day to kill, let us know. We'll like figure out a way for you to stay overnight. It would just be so nice to see you. That'd be a dream. Yeah, do it. Do it. We're on the Amtrak line, as you know. Oh, Amtrak to the ferry. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Okay. Yeah, I would love to do that. Do you still do that camping night thing? This year, we haven't done it. I mean, this is like some insider baseball, but we're <laughs> we're having the opening for the 1010 show on June 4th. Okay. And so we are going to have some fellows back. So if you happen to be around New York on June 4th, like you should come back. I am going to be actually there on June 4th. 
Because I have an event in New York on the third and an event on the sixth in New York. So, oh my gosh, come out. That'd be so fun. Yeah, a hundred percent come out. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, text me off the recording because you should absolutely come. That'd be so fun. Yeah. It's just going to be a couple of the artists hanging out, and some of the artists couldn't come. So, there's plenty of room. Cool. Oh my goodness. This is so fun. Thank you for doing this. And thank you for doing our tote bag a couple of years ago. That was so cool. I still use mine all the time. Okay, good. Thinking of, oh my God, is this person mad at me? I had a moment before we recorded where I thought, did I ever send them the tote bag? Yes. Yes, you did. You did. (laughs) You did. Okay, good. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Oh, good. I honestly really loved your book and I just have been thinking about it so much. And even that pioneer story, I was like, I know this happened. Did that happen? Yeah, that legit happened. That legit happened. I was like, this is legit like a late nineties school thing. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I actually have a picture I'm going to post on my Instagram of me dressed as the ox and then the reenactment. Oh my God. Oh my God. I love it so much. Did you survive at the end? No, it wasn't set up like a video game like that. It was basically just like a procession. Okay. All right. Cause I was going to say, I was like, the mass grave. I was like, but you know, there are things kind of like that where now they would do it so differently. Yeah. And it is interesting to think about how times have changed. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It was like, there was so many weird things about like Native Americans that we did that were like, that would never happen now. Oh my God. So many. Oh my God. Wildness. Okay. Well, I could talk to you for so long, but I will let you go. Well, thank you so much. This was a joy. Oh, good. Yay. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and keep in touch via our Instagram at to the lighthouse works for any podcast or residency related news. And don't forget to check out all the additional content that accompanies each episode on our website, lighthouseworks.us. I also want to say thank you to all the artists and writers who have come through our program. We are routinely in awe of what you do. I also owe a great big fat thank you to Nate Malinowski and Claudia DeSimone. Thank you for keeping us afloat. That's all for me for now. See you next time on More Friends.